Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I'm Jason, a guy who is in recovery. And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And we're joined today by Alexis. Hi, Alexis. Hi. <laughs> and Giuseppe from Talk Recovery Radio. Is Did I say that right? A few hats, definitely. Talk Recovery Radio is one of them, for sure. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure I got the title right. So we are going to explore all kinds of different things about recovery. And, and these two lovely folks are from Vancouver, which I think is like ground zero for open minds in <laughs> recovery communities. Um, and so we're, we're going to talk, we're going to learn, we're going to explore, but I'm just going to let either Alexis or Giuseppe, whoever would like to start, uh, start with a little version of your story and tell us about yourselves. Yeah, for sure. Well, my name is Giuseppe, and I'm super grateful to be here. Uh, coming from a community called New West, uh, which is uh, nicknamed New West Recovery, uh, which has uh, uh, become one of, um, I-, I would say, uh, not North America's, but definitely Canada's largest recovery community. I hear about Florida a lot. I, I still haven't been down there, but I think our recovery p- community is pretty, uh, pretty happening. Some uh, really large um, 12-step community meetings. I mean, you go to a meeting on a Thursday and it's just two, 250 people in there and, and that's, you know, your basic meeting. So a lot of, and the other thing too that I'm really proud of our community is there's a lot of young people here. And, you know, we're living in a city that's, uh, you know, very close to the epicenter of one of the worst drug ghettos, open drug markets in, in, in the world, um, you know, the downtown east side. And, it, and it's really nice to see young people because I remember when I was 20, or when I was 15, I was talking to young people as young as that. Recovery was not on the radar. I was going to clubs when I was 15. You know, I had long, curly black hair. And I looked pretty good. <laughs> I had going out to Detroit and, and just doing that whole scene. And, uh, you know, if you would have told me what I was doing was wrong, I, I just, you know, you disappeared from my life. And, you know, I, I went to the bars every night. I mean, back then it was dollar drink night, and 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 it was just so much fun. And uh, you know, I remember walking into a club called Backstreet. It was in uh, a horrible neighborhood in Detroit because uh, I'm originally from Windsor. And um, I just remember it's a gay bar, and I just remember walking in, and it was an old supermarket. And and it's like you know, most kids get excited to go to Disneyland. I was like, this is it. You know, this is where I'm going to live for the rest of my life. And um, and I did for like a decade. I, I just did that whole scene and uh, I worked in the scene. And you know, by the age of uh, 21, I had my first club and I was in a bar, you know, forever and uh, se- seven days a week. And um, by the time I was 30, I if I wasn't a drug addict, I probably would have been a pretty um, productive uh, and, and rich uh, hospitality business person. But unfortunately, I didn't pay my bills. And, uh, you know, we just partied every night and my friends were DJs and it was the beginning of the after hours club scene. 
you know, in the world of tech music and, and ecstasy had come out and and I, I was just at the right place at the right time. And 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 I, I, I'd like to say kind of dumb enough to like risk my life that much. Uh, it, because I've done a set of steps, I've realized that back then I thought I was I was the bomb. And um, one day it just literally it was like one day it just came all crashing down. I mean it was probably a series of steps um, and, and 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 consequences that happened. But I was just like I got to get out of town, and uh, and I left town and I moved to Vancouver. And um, you know I I thought okay I'll just start a new life. And I, I didn't know, I didn't go to counseling, I didn't go to therapy, I, I didn't ask people for help, I didn't have that, you know, historical mental health conversation. I, I was just, you know, high and drunk and then I would pass out. Um, and then I came to Vancouver with all those issues, but not knowing there were issues, Vancouver's drug scene was a bit different than the drug scene back in Windsor. And, and then I got into different uh, uh, substances that weren't really part of other club scene back then and um next thing you know i i was uh living on the streets using in the downtown east side and uh thankfully um i ended up um uh walking into somebody who was in a 12-step program who gave me some insight on what to do and um somehow you know i i listened and long story short it wasn't a very like ah I've arrived. I'm powerless over my addiction. I do all this work. It wasn't like that. It, it was kind of like, okay, how can I like do this so I can return to use and still keep using? So I struggled in the very beginning, had some relapses, had some disappointments. Um, but now, you know, I, I can say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying life and, and uh, I, I, I can see this as a way to live. So I'm, I'm pretty excited that I was able to get to that place. A lot of it has to do with the New West recovery community. It really inspired me. Um, you know, a lot of people joke around if they ask me for a topic for a 12-step meeting, usually the go-to is fun and recovery. Because uh, I really believe if you, you can't make this fun and you can't laugh at your story, and you can't find, you know, some solution in your story, um, you're, you're not going to stick around to do recovery. And, and, and that's what I bought into and, and that's what I do. And, and, and somewhere down the road, um, I met this lovely lady, Alexis, and, uh, you know, I was just like, I like her. And uh, it was like 14 years ago. And, and, and uh, you know, I just I remember her at a meeting with her kid, you know, at uh, Saturday Night Live. And I was just like, yeah, she's like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I remember that, too. You know, it's funny, like I uh, I grew up in recovery, really. I came to my first meeting when I was 17 um, and it was really to appease my parents. I started doing drugs at 13 and, um, and, and it was a way to escape. I had been expelled from like four schools and, and this was kind of like the last, my parents were like, if you don't go to a meeting, you're, you're getting kicked out. Right. And I had already sort of gone back and forth. And so I, I started my recovery journey at, at 17 and like Giuseppe talked about, there were a lot of young people in the rooms that I was able to connect with. And, and even though I didn't get clean and stay clean at 17, when I was 19 and ready and had gone to a treatment center, um, when I got out of that treatment center and I came to new Westminster, uh, recovery community who a friend of mine who I got to, uh, high school with he had gone to the last doors youth program so he said hey come out to new westminster 
um, the last Rosa Treatment Center and they had a, a, a youth boys program. He said, come out to New Westminster. There's tons of people our age getting clean. And so when I got out there, I didn't feel like I was in this stuffy room with all these people that were like, 40, 50, 60, you know, telling these like old school stories. Like we were out having fun. Like we were going to movies. We were doing crazy stuff on the street at like sober. Like we go to 7-Eleven and like people watch at one in the morning. And like, but we were all clean and doing it together. And we did some crazy stuff, you know, but it was people that were together. We also did readings and we would also go to meetings together. And then we would go all hang out together at the arcade after it was like really fun. Um, you know, I had kids really young, like Giuseppe talked about, like I'm, I, my oldest daughter is 17. Um, I'm 39. I had them really young. Right. And, uh, and so I would take these kids to meetings with me, um, you know, when I got clean, I sort of looked at these other people. I, I still never really felt like a part of, or um, I, I always, even when I got clean when I was so young, I always sort of felt distant and uh, and different. And when I got um, married and had these kids, I felt felt like that was what I needed to do to be a part of because I had seen these people that were, you know. 35 getting clean getting married and having kids but I was 20 like I wasn't 35 um so I got married and we had these two kids and we moved out of the community and and you know when I moved out of the community I sort of lost the connection of the community I stopped going to meetings I stopped it's that regular story that people talk about right before they pick up right like I stopped going to meetings I stopped doing all the things that that they said that they would that that you know, was keeping me clean for a long time. I stopped sponsoring people. I stopped talking to my sponsor. I stopped doing service. And I had these two little kids and this husband and I'm living far away. And I had this huge ego, like, oh, now I have the house and the car and the kids and the guy and the everything. And I don't need that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then when that happened, you know, I became really angry. And I remember saying to my husband at the time, uh, well, ex-husband, like, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm an addict. I think that I can drink and I think that it'll be okay. Um, and he was like, yeah, okay. And, you know, I was, I had this big thing of convincing him, like, you know, you'll probably like me a lot better. And he's like, yeah, I probably will. And he didn't. <laughs> he did not like me better. That... He did not like me better. Um, and we got divorced. And uh, and I sort of set off on this. Like, for me, I never thought that alcohol was a problem, right? Because I'd always done drugs. I'd always, I was doing crystal meth at 17, right? Like, alcohol was never a thing for me. And so what I tell people now is that when, and maybe it's because I had more to lose because I had kids and a job and, you know, a career and everything. Um, but alcohol brought me down faster than any other drug ever did. And so it's important to, to give that messaging, right. That like, it doesn't matter what it was for me, that whatever I picked up, I used to this crazy thing. And, and so, yeah, I had this crazy like in and out and I came back in, in 2012 and got married, had a couple more kids, got divorced again. And, (laughs) um, and and then I started doing the steps when I was in uh, my third year and, and 
when I was in my third year, that was like the thing. When I started doing the program as it's designed, um, my life changed. And I don't know, like Giuseppe talked about, like it's a lifestyle now. People ask me all the time, why do you still go to meetings? Or why do you still do recovery? Or you're 10 years clean almost. Like, why are you still doing this? And it's really that I haven't repaid my debt to the people, the places, the meetings, the things that have uh, given me the amazing life that I have today. Like I've got four kids. I have a really great relationship with my ex, one of my ex-husbands. That's progress, right? At least one of them. And, uh, and, you know, I've built businesses. Like I've, I'm really proud of the accomplishments that I've done and, and made. And, and if you would have told me when I got clean back in 2012, that my life would look the way that it does right now, I would have never believed you. So, um, yeah, I'm just really grateful for also having the new West recovery community because, um, yeah, it was, it, I don't know, like, I guess I would have done it in somewhere else, but I'm grateful for the, um, foundation that was set for me. Um, because there are people there with like 35, 40 years clean, like a lot of people that still go to the meetings that still do the recovery that still help with the, um, you know, destigmatization and the overdose and all the, all the everything that are just involved in the community that are pillars that I can look up to and lean on still. So yeah, I'm really happy to be here. That's, that's my really long story. Giuseppe knows I like to talk. <laughs> are you, are you addicted to having kids are you, to being a mom? I know. Well, I got, pre- I got, I got remarried and he didn't have kids. Right. And, and so I repeated the same mistake, right? Like I, I thought that when I got clean, that what's going to fix me is by getting married and having kids. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it, it, it's this weird. Uh, and, and I think it stems from my childhood of like my mom getting married and having kids and, and being better and having my, heard my dad take care of her. And I thought that I needed a guy to take care of me. And, and what's interesting is like, after repeating that same mistake, it's not a mistake. Like I, my kids are amazing. Right. But like, after repeating that same thing, like what I realized after getting divorced for the second time, like I've been really single since, and I've been self-supporting and I make more than one of them. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so it's like, uh, it, it really, like if I hadn't gone through that twice, um, you know, like they say, like the universe gives us the same thing over and over until we, until we learn it. And, and thank God I learned it after four kids and not 10. Right. I feel, I feel like uh beauty and the beast. There's that one line where it's like the, the woman that's like singing, I need six eggs. That's too expensive. Like I always wanted to be Belle, but I turned out to be that lady. <laughs> so he says that, but I have four kids and he has five. So we have, <laughs> well, I was just curious if she was addicted to being a mom because I was addicted to sex. Oh, like, okay. That was my issue. I thought That's maybe she had, had different motivations. Well, I'm just codependent. If someone asked me to do something, I'm like, okay. <laughs> so the, the new West, uh, recovery community, is that short for new Westminster? Yeah, it's short for New West, and it's just a nickname that I got dubbed a while ago. And one of the hats that I wear, I'm the director of community development for a nonprofit charity called Last Star Recovery Society. 
And it's a treatment center that offers services to youth and adults. It's a pretty big program and uh, it's been around for almost 40 years. I've been there for probably 12 or 13 years uh, as an employee. And, you know, one of the things, uh, uh, aside from the addiction treatment, uh, it's an abstinence uh, supported environment, no smoking program. Um, it's got that nickname, if you want to get clean, you go to Last Door. If you kind of want to just put Band-Aids on, on your addiction, there's lots of other places to go to. Mind you, I'm friends with all the other places, so that's not a diss. It's just, you know, people, that's, that's what I heard of detox. You don't want to go there. That's where they make you get clean. So I was just like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll go there. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's what it's it's called. And But one of the things that Last Door's done is it's a strong voice for recovering out loud. And I work in the back office uh, with, uh, and, and we devote a lot of energy on recovery events. Um, and they all started, you know, I remember like one of my first events was a pancake breakfast for like the service committee of our 12-step fellowship. And But with my background, it, you know, I was in clubs for so long. I was just like, I can use some of that energy. And uh, so me and a couple of other people started to put things together. And, and so the community engagement piece of Last Door kind of got bigger. Um, and then it got really big, you know, after a decade or so. And for example, you know, at the back, this photo, that was Recovery Day pre-COVID 2019. About 40,000 people showed up for Recovery wow. Day. And, and it it's a big deal because I was on the community. It's the 10th anniversary this year. Um, I remember 10 years ago, you couldn't even get 20 service providers to like set up an information booth. But there's a lot of uh, them and us and you and me and my evidence is bigger than your evidence and my program is in. Like, we all spent so much energy in the addiction treatment industry. And I know this is in the States as well, where we just worried about our own business model in our own four walls. Like we're going to figure out how to do our brick and mortar and, and, and just work on these islands, whether you're a private funded harm reduction, abstinence, uh, religious program. And, and so when we did recovery day, we, we couldn't even get people to set up booths because they're all like, well, who else is going to be there? And it's just so weird. It's just like, is it an NA thing? I'm like, no, like I'm calling you. I'm asking you to set up a tent. That I'm not setting you up. You know, so we throw tomatoes at you. Like, I want you to be there. And um, probably one of the um, most um, proud moments was in 2019, we had 150 information booths. Like, like that's, and it's not just me. There's Susan, there's Lorinda, there's lots of people in our committee. But I was like, we, we, we hustled. Like, we hustled to get unity in the service providers. There was, it was my dream. It was all the programs that we thought of. You know, it's just like be there together because, you know what, last door might work for you today. It might not work for you today. These people might work for you today. It doesn't mean we're better. It just means or they're better. It just means that's where you're at in life. And and that narrative is now is now pretty a, a common conversation. It's not the standard go-to. There's still, unfortunately, a lot of competition, especially in the States with private insurance. But it's, it's the beginnings. And, and, and you know, the COVID hit. The momentum's still there. We're looking at a big event again this year. It's on September 10th. You know, we do that kind of stuff. And and, and it's all because New US Recovery has kind of given us that opportunity to recover out loud and, and understand what the traditions really are. Anonymity doesn't mean be invisible. Anonymity doesn't mean keep quiet. 
Uh, anonymity doesn't mean it's it's a secret. Anonymity means it's just you're not the reason why this is all happening. And and that's a very simple way of looking at it. Um, but, you know, we can get more into it if there, you know, because we get the anonymity police calling us every once in a while. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the same thing with pride, you know, me, Donnie P, Alex, you know, a couple of my friends were like six months clean. They let us go to pride because we're still living in a rehab center at the door because there was a client there. And, um, we went to Pride and, and the parade was done and we're looking at each other and we're like, we have to go home because everything was at a bureau garden in, at Vancouver Pride. And, um, you know, we couldn't go really go to the parties. And I don't want to get into the conversation whether or not you can go to clubs if you're in recovery. I think everyone has their own path. But where we were at at the time, we weren't allowed to go to clubs or to festivals that had bear gardens because we were still living in rehab. And uh, so we went home and, and uh, you know, this is a message out to everybody. You, know, you really need to make your recovery your recovery. And so we could have just gone home and been victims and been like, oh, my life sucks. Like, I can't go to Pride anymore. And you're talking to a guy that went to Pride every year, all like did Pride, you know, passed out at the end of it, but did Pride. <laughs> and so here we are, we kind of like communicated with each other and then with support of the organization the year after, you know, we did a little fundraiser and we put it together a, a pride float for people in recovery. No one <laughs> wanted to be in it. We had nine people in it. Like everyone's just like, you know, there was this idea, like, I don't want people to know I'm sober. You know, I don't want people to know I'm in recovery. I don't want people to know that I was a drug addict, you know, that whole thing. And, and because I worked in the club business for a while, I was part of prides before for a different reason. And I thought this is the same thing as the gay pride movement. Like, I remember that conversation when I was talking to friends, hey, you're going to Toronto Pride. That's uh, here in Canada. And they're like, oh, no, you know, I might get seen on the news. I think about that now. I'm like, there's a million people there. Like, as if a camera is going to pick you up. But it's this subconscious thing in the background. Somebody might see me. And so fast forward another year, I'm like, you know what? We're going to make this a thing. And so we had a small dance. Um, on Pride, and we didn't want to make it a fellowship dance because then it's not inclusive. Because then you have to be in that fellowship to either hear about it or really feel part of it. So we organized a Pride sober dance. Not even Vancouver Pride was part of it. They they actually said no. You know we don't like we're not really interested in being part of that. Like that's where we were at. You know, twelve thirteen years ago, and where the organization actually said no, we don't want anything to do with you guys. So we had this dance and, and no one showed up. We couldn't even give free tickets away. But persistence and work, not being a victim and being like, no, this is right. Like, I remember when I was 16 and I went to Toronto Pride, I didn't see the word sober anywhere. I saw Bud Light. I saw most of Canadian. I saw weed. I saw drugs. And my dream was to have the words clean, sober, and proud in the middle of the village here in Vancouver. And, you know, pre-COVID, obviously, in 2019, you know, we did events every year and we ended up closing down the main street of the village for a sober dance. And the words clean, sober, and proud were all across the stage. And yeah, it was a party and a drag show. We, like over a thousand people showed up just in, this, in the one area. Huge. But at the end of the day, we were so visible that hundreds of thousands of people saw those words. And, and so this is, you know, coming from a group of guys that felt like, you know, life's not theirs. They've lost their identity, but the reality is, is, is we just had to recreate it, and 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 we had to do it through you know positive thinking, positive aspirations, and work. You know, people didn't do it for us; we had to do it ourselves. And 
And so if you're out there listening to the show and you're like, oh, my identity, you know, what am I going to do? And if you come at it from a victim perspective, yeah, you're going to have a shitty life. But if you come at it, it's like, how can how can I entertain myself? And how can I be part of the solution? Stuff like this happens. Like, I'm telling you, we couldn't even get 20 service providers to show up. Now it's like there's a waiting list. And I, I'm really proud of that. So, you know, being part of the recovery community isn't taking what you can. Being part of a recovery community is what can you add to it. And and me and an army of people, Alexis is part of those things. Alexis is a part of our pride events all the time. And people come to trust you. And, and still you get those conversations like, you know, I don't want people to know about me, but it's it's a lot less. Um, compared to when we all started this over a decade ago, it's 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 more common people being okay to recover out loud um, than it was, you know, just even a decade ago. I remember we used to get in arguments on Facebook whether or not we could even talk about recovery on Facebook. Now, look at where we're at, you know, and and so that's what we do. So it's it's Pride, it's Recovery Day, it's Recovery Month, it's you know trying to. I'm not against term reduction. I do believe, you know, you guys are going through what you're going through in the States right now with, with your harm reduction conversations. But I, I just believe that we need to make sure that we don't hide in anonymity while harm reduction takes over North America. Like recovery has always been a go-to uh, response in Portugal, Switzerland, um, European harm reduction models. Recovery is always you know, the goal. It's never been sustained drug use. And and North America and including the States is 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 buying into the idea that harm reduction is is not supposed to carry people to recovery. It's simply supposed to keep people alive. That's not the case in Europe. And and they use the European model for for you know the go-to for research, but they're they're not bringing the full story. Uh, like uh, for example, Portugal, you Light a joint, you're getting a ticket. You do you smoke crack in Lisbon, you're getting arrested. And that's a country with decriminalization. And, uh, and the only reason why I bring it up is is one another project I work on is we're doing a documentary called Crisis. And I remember going to Portugal and I'm from Vancouver and I'm on stakeholder groups and I'm involved. And you know, I heard all this stuff about Portugal and Switzerland and it's you know, drugs are destigmatized because of you know decrim and San Francisco and Portland and all your American cities are buying into that. It's not true. It's not true. So I, I interviewed Dr. Galau, the founder of the, of the Portuguese model. He's like, decriminalization has one of the least effects to reducing their overdose crisis. And if your son is addicted to drugs, you call the police. The police come to your house. They write your son a ticket and it's got to go to a commission called the Commission of Drug Dissuasion. It's, you don't go to jail, but if you continually use drugs and go on the streets in what they call social disorder, you will get mandated to treatment or go to jail or you get fined. Like, it's just, you never hear that when you have all these, you know, um, you know, harm reduction uh, advocates in, in these cities in America and Canada. You never hear that part of the story. You just hear the word decriminalization like it's a sexy hashtag. So, you know, just warning you, if you have any other guests on your show and stuff like that, they start talking about Portuguese decriminalization, just stop and be like, yeah, no, this Giuseppe guy said you can't even smoke crack on the street. <laughs> I went to a harm reduction clinic. I went to a harm reduction clinic in Portugal. I mean, I'll end it on here. It looked like a bakery. <laughs> like, I was just like, this is the nicest 
cardboard, actually, I don't think I've ever seen. Like, it looked like a bakery. No drug use outside. It was just completely in a, in a cute neighborhood. It's, it was it was in downtown Lisbon. I interviewed the ED, and and it was just there was no social disorder. Like you, it was like if you do drugs, here's your medical intervention, but we'll help you access to treatment right there. And so I asked her, I'm like, what would you do if somebody took this pipe and actually started smoking outside of the window here, like on the sidewalk? Because in Vancouver, it's everywhere, right? And she looked at me, and it's on camera. She's like, well, that would never happen. And you got to remember how she said that. That would never happen. And I was just like, well, what do you mean it would never happen? Well, we would we would just stop serving them, and, and we'd have to call the police. Like, you do that in Vancouver, you're getting fired. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so you got to go back. Like, why did she say that would never happen? You know, it's not like, oh, she can't do that. It's like it wouldn't happen because there's this understanding about community that we've lost here. It's like, you have the right to smoke crack in front of my doorstep. I don't have a right for you not to do that. Portugal is the other way around. Dr. Golau said when we toured, we flew him to Vancouver because I needed to show him. And he said, you know, I understand where you have gone wrong here in Canada. In Portugal, we left the responsibility of citizenship to the drug addict. It's very clear in Vancouver, the state has taken over responsibility of citizenship. And you can say that in California, you can say that in Portland, you can say that in every drug ghetto where it's become okay. And, 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 and this is what's where we're at now. We're in a drug crisis. And Europe doesn't have that because from the day one, they said, hey, you use drugs, you're not a bad person. But if you use drugs, it's not okay and we'll help you stop. And, and I hope we get there. And part of the work I do is trying to get that message out there. And that's why I really wanted to bring it up in this interview because we, we've lost touch. That's not like in Switzerland, they don't give out safe supply like M&M candies. It's a very high threshold treatment program. And here it's like, I can get 30 dillies in the morning. So the drug diversion problem and, and people selling the drug, it's, it's becoming a huge problem. More opioids we have on the street, at, like in the Oxycontin days, the worse it is for society. And, and now San Francisco is going to start doing safe supply because of the Vancouver model. It's just absolutely insane. Whatever so, you do. Don't listen to the episode that comes out right before this one, because I argue that we should have free drugs for everyone. Okay. It's, it's, yeah, you know, I just, it's one of those things. No one's wrong. And no one, the only thing that I think that we need to be careful of is we're trying to remove stigma of addiction. But when you say, hey, you're just a drug addict, once an addict, always an addict, here's your medications, here's your drugs, because you're not, that is the, 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 that stigma, you know, that is what the stigma is out there. And, and we've already had safe supply. Oxycontin was on the streets. That was pharmaceutical grade stuff. Like, it was good. And look what happened. And so the research out there shows the more opioids you put on the streets, the more opioid addicts you'll have. And that's the research, you know, and and you don't have to believe me. Um, Alberta, which is a province here in Canada, is actually doing hearings on safe supply where they gather, you know, experts from around the world to actually look at the research on safe supply. It's not good. Like it's not, there actually is no research that safe supply actually saves lives. There's actually research that shows it causes more harm because of the drug diversion problem. 
But you go to Twitter, it's like, you know, the holy grail of solutions. You know, Twitter can't be science. Hashtags can't be science. And it doesn't happen with other diseases, only addiction. And, and that's a problem. And at the end of the day, you know, where we live, 6,007 people have died of overdoses since 2017, since the day they announced that this is a public health emergency. You know, the, the response to that has been more and more harm reduction with a sprinkle of recovery-oriented systems of care. Um, you know, so I, I don't even, I mean, Alexis can attest to it. I don't even know how many people have died. Like, I mean, I, I, like, I don't even know anymore. I remember back in um, maybe 2017, 2018, um, the mayor of Vancouver had a public sort of gathering of people. Oh, yeah, I was with you, yeah. And so they asked people to come and to speak on the overdose crisis, okay? And then they opened it up to a table conversation for just general public to come in and talk about uh, what they think. So anyone could show up and a bunch of like recovering addicts showed up and it was interesting. So they had like mothers against drunk driving. Um, they had, they, they had harm reduction. They had the um, safe injection sites. They had uh, legalization or like decriminalization of, uh, they had everything. They had the health authority there. They had like the head of the health authority. Then they had the Vancouver uh, police department chief that was there. And he went up there and he said, you know, what's interesting. Every speaker that's here today, there's not one abstinence-based speaker that was invited to speak there today, which is crazy. And it shows where the money's going. It's going into harm reduction. And so we had that conversation. Nothing really came about. I don't think anything. Never does. It was just something to like appease the, the the public or say yeah we're talking about it yeah um but it was interesting to hear the vancouver police department talk about abstinence as a viable option and that that was missing from that conversation so and i'm with just up listen like i i'm if if there is i have a a an aunt who's Oh my gosh, I don't even know how old she is now, maybe 68. She's been a heroin addict since she was 13. And she has been on um, a drug replacement therapy for the last 10 years. And she tried, I mean, in and out of jail, in and out of, has never gotten off of heroin, right? So for her, the best option for her is to stay on a drug replacement therapy for the rest of her life. And that's what it's going to be. And it's not that she has a, a great, quality of life on it but she has a better quality of life than obviously than you know what she would have been harm reduction is there it's 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 an option I'm not saying that it's not it's it's not like let's get rid of harm reduction for her it's important it's there um and and it's you know she's working and she has a little community of people and and you know it's it's okay um it saved her life but it's not the only option. And so that is... That's the whole piece with the recovery-oriented and harm reduction. So there's no guidelines. And and, and almost every healthcare uh, sector, there's guidelines. And so, you know, when you talk about your grandmother, your aunt, and somebody who's older than you, I I get it. But our focus is teens. Like when I started working at Last Door, 
you know, we we have our programs for 14 and 18 year olds. You really saw the the change and the kids showing up and just how many meds they're on. Like I'm talking like huge meds. And, and here's the other problem. We're a private public partnership. So we have private beds and funded beds. You know, the, the private kids were showing up pretty quick because they had money. The funded kids weren't because they were going to the free clinics downtown. And, and I don't know how many times I heard the story, you know, where, you know, this, if you had an uncle or an aunt in recovery, you seemed to show up to treatment faster. And, and then you talk to them. It's like, yeah, you know, my, my doctor told me, you know, we're talking about 17 year olds. You know, I had to stay on, you know, methadone for the rest of my life. And every time I kind of had a feeling he would up my dose. I mean, kids were showing up on so much methadone. And, uh, and, and, and that doesn't happen in Portugal because Portugal is not privatized. And, and when it comes to methadone, you don't have any incentives for keeping people on methadone in, Port in Portugal. Here, and it's in the States too, you actually get paid to put people on methadone. So I'm not saying doctors are greasy, but I'm like, why are so many people getting put on Suboxone and methadone? And, and they're still dying. You know, the rates are still there. The overdoses are still there. So it, it was the thing of like, why isn't a clinic being regulated? How many people are actually being referred to recovery? Because if you don't have money in private insurance or private health care, you know, you're getting this type of treatment. But if you're rich and you can afford an intervention, you're getting sent to an abstinence program. It's the same disease, two different modalities of care. And everyone seems to be okay with that. And I, I scream that so loud when I go to stakeholder meetings. Like it's completely unfair that it depends on your financial capital to determine what kind of treatment model you're going to get. So I know tons of people that got horror stories from the methadone and suboxone clinics, but they have money. So they survived it. How about the ones that don't? And how about those those moms and those young mothers that, and young fathers that don't have an uncle or an aunt in recovery to guide them? Like there needs to be a national, so like the Commission of Drug Dissuasion in Portugal, we need that here. Whether you like the name or change it, you know, that's fine. But a national organization in Canada or the U.S. that is recovery orientated. That gives you all the options of care, despite how much money you have or don't have. And these are all, and we're not, we're completely okay with whatever you choose because we have no financial gain depending on what you choose. Like those psychiatrists and and psychologists that sit on the commission, Portugal, they don't care where you go. They don't they don't get anything out of it. They just want you to get well. But you have to pick something. And and here is just you go up to Google or you. You, you you accidentally, like in my case, I accidentally walked into the right person. I shouldn't have to accidentally walk into the right person to get healthcare. It should have been offered to me. This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, Members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. So, so one of the reasons, you know, we, we do all this advocacy is because I, I, I'm a bit crazy. 
Um, that's one. And uh, number two is, uh, uh, you know, I got a job that allows me to do it. Um, but like I said, right, I, my friends are dying. And, and I'm finding, and, and I got myself involved where I could look and walk away and go do another job. Um, but I decided to like actually, you know, do something and, and try to break down the stigma. People in recovery are, like, it's not like we get clean and we hate drug users, but people think that, like, there's the people in recovery and then there's people in harm reduction. And, and that's what's killing people because there's a lot of people in recovery that relapse. And then they don't really want to go to the downtown east side or they, 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 they have jobs that are safety sensitive. There's this gray area on what to do when you use drugs. And it's like these little neighborhoods that, you know, foster, you know, uh, the, the ghettoization of drug users like the downtown east side. You can get everything there. Why would you leave? Right. Um, so, you know, one of the projects that we worked on was creating an app. And the reason why I created a better app was because I have sponsees, Alexis has sponsees. It's like when your sponsee relapses, do they just disappear? Do they just go, you know? And so we wanted to keep connected with them. And there's an overdose prevention tool in there, you know, which works globally. And and if you're if you're my friend, like I know tons of people that would be alive today if they would have used the safety net feature. It's like, if you're gonna use drugs and you're you're in an area that doesn't have some type of overdose response, and they don't go to consumption sites because they don't want to. Like everyone thinks it's stigma. Like I, I couldn't go to a, a smoke inhalation room, which they have here to do drugs. Because when I smoke dope, I don't want to be around people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't know why they don't get that. They're trying to make it an environment where it's like everyone goes to. It's, it's like people like to do drugs by themselves for reasons. And, and that's never going to change. And so I thought, you know, what a great idea to to have an opportunity for, you know, I'm not judging you, you can use drugs, but you're still connected to the recovery community. So if you ever want that moment of hope to be in front of you, it's still there. And so you can set me up as your safety net. If you're going to use drugs, you start the counter. If you don't respond to the alarm um, that shuts off, I'll get a notification that, hey, um, you know, Charlie hasn't responded. He may have uh, become unconscious, uh, would you like to call an ambulance? And then I can, I know your address because you gave it to me. So I call an ambulance and, and there's, so I didn't want to recreate Facebook for people in recovery. That's not the point. The point is, you know, staying connected with people in recovery, staying connected when you travel, there's lots of features on there. Uh, but most importantly, it's like if, if you have a sponsee or like a family friend that's using in the basement, you know, here, just use this clock. And, and, and if you don't, then I'm going to come downstairs and I'll lock zone you. I mean, there's so many dead people. And, and, and it's this, you know, COVID was important. Yeah. But like, this is pretty important too. And, and, and I think the reason why we haven't been able to get to a place to really slow you down overdose numbers is the disunity in all of the services and the setup of grants to really funnel into certain projects. And so we're all fighting for dollars. You know, they think we're fighting for space. We're not. We're fighting for dollars. You know, we're fighting for grants. And, you know, if, if we do, like, we have this thing in Canada called the SUAP grant. If we apply for a grant that has to do with anything that has to do with recovery, you're off the list. But if I want to open up a smoke inhalation room or a consumption site, it's like, check, you know. So even people in recovery that are getting SUAP grants have translated their language 
All right. And this is going to maybe go back to, you know, your show that you guys did about pro-safe supply. So there's, you know, they've trans and they call it person-centered. It's not. It's grant-centered. Like, you know, in Ottawa, they've taken the word recovery out of recovery day. It's called the wellness festival. Uh-huh. It's people-centered. I'm like, and I called them out on LinkedIn, USOB. Like, that's not why you changed the name. It's grant-centered. It's because you want people who call themselves addicts and alcoholics and sober to show up at your recovery day, hide their identity because it causes stigma and call it wellness. You would never go to gay pride and tell people, hey, don't use the word gay because 90% of the world thinks that, you know, you're, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, like there'd be a revolt. It's gay pride. You know, everyone has a name for it, but here they've actually called it something else and the same thing's happening in the states. It's it's grant centered. Never whenever somebody says person centered, it's grant centered. It's like how do I make this sound appeasing so I'll get my grant? And and we get we don't get a lot of grants for what we do because we're like you're an addict, call yourself an addict. You're an alcoholic, call yourself an alcoholic. And the more we say it, the less stigmatizing it is. Um, you know, it's it's just like I can't. We used to be part of this you know, recovery organization, uh, I'm not going to say their name, uh, but it's American-based. We left it because they gave us a how to organize recovery day and to not use stigma language. It's like, that's my name. I'm Giuseppe. I'm an addict. Like, I've been through enough. Don't tell me I can't use the word addict. It's like, that's the stigma. You telling me not to use it. I'm pretty proud of my label. And so Better App came out and it's it's one of those opportunities for people to stay connected, save lives. You step work on it, add sponsors. You know, it's fairly new. A couple of glitches here and there, but we're working on it. You know, we're just a nonprofit. I wish I was, you know, had Facebook's money, but we don't. Uh, you know, hopefully one day we'll see what happens. But uh, it's all about staying connected and building recovery capital in people. And and I like recovery capital um, because it, it includes all pathways to recovery. And yeah, I got clean in a 12-step program. Uh, I got clean in NA. But that doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. But when I say that, I don't want to say that it doesn't work. And it works. A works. They all work. It just depends, you know, so what, what you want to do with your life. And, and I think uh, if we can continue to build unity um, and, and com- continue to believe that, you know, once an addict, always an addict isn't true, anybody can get clean. We'll, we'll get out of this mess. And that's the uh, the better app. Uh, my version says better app dash my recovery. It's by last door recovery society. And I, I say that because when I tried to search it up by myself, there was 18 billion apps named better something or other. So it was just easier to find that way. And, you know, one of the features you mentioned this idea of like a way to safely monitor people who are going to be in active use, you know, Alexis mentioned that to me when we were talking about it and, and, it seemed brilliant, right? At the moment she mentioned it because I was like, I literally used to put 911 into my phone and this was pre-smartphones, right? And I would have my finger over the call button as I did my shot because I was like, well, maybe I can click it quick enough before I die, right? Like that crazy idea. And so to have this, you know, that it was a good idea. I guess when you were talking about it here, the one thing that did come up for me though, I was like, man, that is a lot of faith in like phone notifications and apps not breaking. Like that does scare me just a little bit. That's got to be a, a, a real uh, monitored service, I guess. But the concept behind this, you know, a place for people to 
it's not so much. I feel like there's a there's a kind of a recovery community website now, but it, it's not necessarily. It's more like twelve steppy focused, and and that's fine. Right? I, I don't hate the twelve steps, but this is more inclusive. I feel like it's got modes for everything. It's got uh, places to hang out, step work, sponsorship, people to you know ways to stay in touch with people who have gone back out, and that is a concept I don't think exists anywhere else right now. And so I would love to see, you know, an Elon or, or a Zuckerberg, like jump in here and, and, and start funding these kind of things. They need this kind of money. They need, we need, like you said, we, we base things around grants, unfortunately, because that's the only way to get funding. Right. And we need the money to do positive things for people. That's one of those things that's just necessary. And uh, people don't want to put money into it. We all have that story of relapse and, and then being like, can I, am I still part of this recovery community? And, and that's a real situation. And, and then some of us, you know, do the work to understand a lot of that had to do with psychosis. <laughs> but there is some reality in there. You know, everyone's talking about me. And, and yeah, it's kind of true for two days and then they stop uh, because there's another person, right? But the reality is, is like, let's, let's do our best at trying to remove that 24-hour period of, of, of making people feel, no, you're still part of. Like, and, and you know, you know, I always think about uh, Tristan, a eh, Alexis? Like, it just, like, he struggled and, and, and got lost in that conversation that he wasn't part of this anymore. And it's like, yeah, you are, you know, and then, and, and, but this was years ago, and, and, and I know the last time I had breakfast with him, like, I could have told him, hey, if you're going to use tonight, like, use this and tell me, and no judgment, like, I'll just, you know, and, and, but we didn't, and that was one of the things that helped get better up started, it was that, that drive, the next time I'm having breakfast with somebody like Tristan, I can be like, hey, if you're going to use tonight, like, ping me, and, 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 and that way you're not using alone, um, we're not going to stop people using alone, and this fight mm -hmm. I mean, it's good to spend money on 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 um, on on the narrative. Like, don't use it alone. Like, I believe that's we shouldn't stop spending that money. Um, I think we should. We also just need to start spending money on figuring out ways to support people that are using alone because that will never go away. You know, and, and it's my end. At everything works. You know, I remember listening to my boss, who's retired now. And this was uh, going back a long time ago. And this reporter came and did a, a story on the, the crystal meth ads that were across North America. You know, it shows the person healthy and then they go down and, and to like in jail, right? And there was this big advocacy group trying to get those ads to stop because they were stigmatizing people who use crystal meth. So I get it. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, I smoke crystal meth. That's not me. And some people can smoke crystal meth and live a happy life. Some people can't. And so the story was about, and the advocacy was to stop these ads. And so they, they asked my boss, you know, what do you think? And he said, well, everything works. You know, I might not get you to stop smoking crystal meth, but it might get her to stop smoking meth. So let's do everything and hope everything sticks to at least somebody. And, and and that's where we need to get to, where we're not like, you know, this gets 80% of the funding and this gets 10% of the funding. It's like, let's just throw 100% of the funding at everything. Because this idea that certain things work better, I know people on Suboxone whose lives, like they detox off Suboxone. It, it almost killed, I know one guy, it's like Suboxone almost killed me. But Suboxone has saved so many lives. So do we just forget about him that it almost killed? Like it literally, like, 
Like he just, his life was so suicidal while he was on Suboxone. Like it didn't work for him. And so it's one of those things where we get into this place where we're, we're stigmatizing people with healthcare. It's like, well, this is evidence-based. You need to fit in this box. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it, it's, it's not, the, it's, we can't treat addiction like we treat a broken arm, where it's like, there's one intervention, this is how you fix it, and it's the best practice. You can't treat addiction and mental health like that. It actually causes harm when you try to teach, treat addiction and mental health that way, because then you're like, oh, I'm not good enough. And I think even the 12-step community has realized that because the 12-step community is not the same from when I entered it. Um, like when I entered it, it's like do the steps or die. Now it's turned around where it's like do harm reduction or die. It's com- The pendulum's gone completely the other way. It's just like, what is happening here? And because I've, I've paid attention, I've seen it happen. And so I think what we need to do is just try your best and something will work. And and I think that's a lot more freeing. And it's not forcing people. I don't think everybody in the world needs to come to Last Door Recovery Society to get clean. Like, it's just, it just ain't going to happen. And we get that. But I think everybody should be given an opportunity to do that if they want to. And, and, and I don't believe that everything needs to, you know, every service needs to be provided to everybody from the get-go. Because that's it's not going to happen either. Who's going to pay for it? You know, there's no money in it for now. I think we just need to give education to people and have, you know, if anybody out there is a policymaker, have some type of organizational structure where the recovery coaching industry actually becomes legitimized. Like right now it's in the private world. And it's like, you know, who's got money gets recovery coaches. Recovery coaches is, can be the gateway to harm reduction and recovery-oriented assistance of care. But it's it's just it's gotten lost in the private intervention world, and it should be done at the local level. Um, you know, because any agency you walk into in Canada, I don't know about the states, but it's always tied to the services they offer. So, of course, they're going to promote their services. Why wouldn't they? They they have a bottom line to me, whether a nonprofit or not. It's just like, yeah, this is what we do. This is what you're going to do. And so to have somebody that is a, a, at arm's length from those services offering you suggestions on how to get well, that's a healthy, productive, recovery-oriented system of care. Because no one's making money where you go. Obviously, there'll be corruption and all of that someday, but you get regulations to fix that. Until we get there, I honestly believe from all the stakeholders I've sat in and all the work I've done, we're never going to get over this addiction crisis because that is the crisis. It's privatized hmm. and, and and everything else is it, and, you know, in Canada anyway. So, so it's, uh, it's fascinating. I feel like we could spend, you and I, just personally, like six hours because I, I actually anticipated us being – and not that we're on like – drastically different pages of all this, but we do have some slightly different takes on things. And I would want to pick your brain more because I do think you have a little more of the, the numbers and the scientific community research. And, you know, I, I have, you know, what I think are great ideas of mine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I would love to have that discussion, but I, I am keeping an eye on time here. And I know one of the things that really uh, attracted me to the idea of having Alexis on to begin with was this idea of the recovery kids program that she has. And I don't want to miss out on hearing a little bit more about that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So recovery kids is something that I started in 2013 and really it just was at Christmas time. Um, my, my own family had given, cause I have a million children and I repopulated the earth. <laughs> I have repopulated the earth together. So you're welcome world. Um, but my kids had like all this abundance of toys and stuff. And I was like, uh, like, I don't want to give them all of this stuff at Christmas. Like, you know, people, my family like sent stuff and, um, and and it was just a lot of stuff. So I was like, okay, let's just drop it off to the recovery community. So I phoned a treatment center and I said, um, hey, I actually phoned a Steppy and I said, hey, can I can I uh, drop off some toys to the guys at the house? Like, could anyone use stuff to give to their kids? And he was like, yeah, bring it by. Um, and then what I realized the next year when I did some research into it with Christmas bureaus and people that are in recovery is that um, kids that like parents that are in treatment at Christmas do not qualify for Christmas bureaus, at least here, because they need to be living with their kid. (laughs) And then the people that are taking care of the kid often are not um, they're not getting child tax. They're not like, they're not their actual guardian, right. On paper. So they don't qualify. So there's this gap in the system of these kids who are getting taken care of while their parents, plus their parents are in treatment and it's weird, right? It's weird and traumatic and different. And all they want is like a good Christmas. And, and, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to, um, go to Facebook because Facebook was was still a thing back then. It was really big. I mean, it's still a thing, but like Facebook was like, come on. It was like the mom's groups. I like went to the mom's groups. I was like, Hey, like, let's figure this out. Like, let's get some kids, some toys. And then I thought, well, my kids, like, I know how crazy different my own children are, right? Like one likes one thing, another likes another thing. Like I think of my niece who really likes hockey. And then my girls are like, I hate hockey. Right. So, um, I didn't want to get things for kids that they didn't want. Right. So then we got wish lists of these kids. Right. And what they wanted. And so we ended up filling like two treatment centers. And then the next year we did three treatment centers. And then this last year we helped 400 kids get toys um, and, and gifts at Christmas time. Um, and we helped eight treatment centers. And then we also sponsored uh, people that were new in recovery that had just gotten out of treatment. Um, so we helped like five of those people and like one kid that I really like, it touched my heart, wanted a scientific calculator. Like you just think how basic that is, right? Like you don't even have a, like you're in grade 10 or 11. I think the the kid was in grade 11 and wanted to take engineering at school and like wanted to like go off and do engineering. And they just didn't have a a calculator to do that. And I thought, man, like, I'm going to get you that calculator. So I got the calculator, but then we phoned the family and we were like, do they have a laptop? And we found out that they didn't and that they were, that kid was like borrowing one from the school and like this back and forth thing. So we went and got a laptop and then that that kid had a a sibling. So then we're like, well, we got to make this equal, right? So then we got the the other kid AirPods and like, just like, it, it just is crazy to watch these dads and moms. So we we go in and we help them like, like rap and everything. And like what it's teaching is it doesn't just teach that. Like, first of all, it's teaching, especially men. I find women are like, yeah, I'll take the free things. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And some men, 
But I find that most men are like, no, I want to provide. Like there's that instinctual, like, or like generational or societal, like pressure onto men to like, don't accept help, provide for your family. And if you don't, you're a piece of shit, right? Like that's just kind of a thing that like men, a lot of men carry. And so that's why I chose a men's treatment center in the beginning. And that it teaches men that is, and women and people that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to receive help. And so many people over the last decade that this has been happening have now come on board and helped others, right? So now they have started a company or whoever they're with, or they'll donate like even like whatever, 10 bucks or a, a, a Starbucks gift card or something. And, and so it creates this community of like, of giving. And, and then I find that for, for children, it allows it to just be a bit of a better uh, Christmas and, and to help relieve the trauma and help support kids is helping to break the cycle of addiction. Right. And so now we're, uh, we're expanding it. So we're going to be offering back to school programs. We're going to be giving uh, fees for kids at school to uh, directly to the school so that if parents can't pay the fees or if they want to go to uh, play sports at school or whatever, that they can do that. We're going to do a, we're doing a sports uh, music art fund so that if kids, because here's the thing, creating community, we know that the antidote to addiction is unity and community, right? And connection. So if we're creating community and, and connection for kids, we're creating a distraction, which is okay for the kids while their parents are in treatment and getting better that it's that they don't have to leave treatment at Christmas to be with their kids like the the gift is the treatment right and then it it just softens the blow a little bit for them while they're in there but then after it's helping those kids to create community create um uh connections with other kids connections with coaches and 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 you know art teachers and and in order to help relief the trauma of addiction which happens right so I'm really excited about it and I just know for my four kids that they uh really love helping and um and was one thing that that helped uh my kids while they were while I was getting clean was like hockey and soccer and their coaches and and things like that so it's uh I watched I watched it happen to my own kids lives and so I I just want to help other kids too you know the other doing we do co-parenting group and so those are the guys that uh, participate in in the gift receiving and like alexis said at first they're all like you know they're in treatment and 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 they're they're like oh no i got it covered it's like no you don't (laughs) you know what i mean like you don't have it covered you're in treatment like let us help you you know and then they soften up and and then it's like and alexis does this great thing where where they don't get they get to pick the gifts they're kind of staged already, but there's some ability to pay, but you have to wrap them yourself because that way it's not charity. It's like, you know, it's coming from you. And that's a big piece of the whole, you know, ownership of the gifts and all that kind of stuff. And, and another beauty part of this is, is people forget addictions are, they say is a chronic relapsing disease, uh, but we don't support people in early recovery. Like we do like the drug user gets all of this support, you know, when you're on the streets and you're homeless and, you know, there's all this crisis going on. Here's, here's, you know, a billion dollars a day. In Vancouver, it's in the millions a day. But the minute you go to rehab and I have experiences myself, you're kind of like, okay, but like, I need help. Like even like if you're a drug user, you get a free cell phone in Vancouver. (laughs) 
But if you're like on welfare and early recovery, you have to go get your own cell phone. And and and, and I remember raising that up at a, at a stakeholder meeting. I'm like, why are you giving all the phones to the drug users? How about people in early recovery looking for jobs? There's still no program to get people in early recovery phones, but there's like a like hundreds of phones going out to the downtown east side every day. So it's this idea that Alexis created the conversation that support people in recovery. You know, because they need they need help too. They they get they're getting their lives back on track, and so it's a, it's a wonderful thing to raise awareness because a lot of people didn't realize. Oh, I, I didn't think about that. Like I'm I'm going to give a ton of items at Christmas for the homeless, but I didn't even think about people in early recovery who got real challenges and don't have the drugs to cope with those challenges. So I give her an applause for that because she opened up this conversation of helping people in early recovery. And it's very important. So thanks, Alexis. Yeah, I, I have my, you know, look, there's issues with Christmas and consumerism and this, that, and the other. And I totally get that, you know, providing one happy, joyous morning isn't fixing the year-long issues that are going on within the household and all that. But it, just as a guy who relishes the magic of the joy in my kid's eyes on that morning, and, you know, my wife and I have, like, always for some reason it's that we've been drawn to like helping families out that need it at christmas and we've done it in a variety of different ways and like i, I mean i've cried with parents giving them the things that they're going to give to their kids because they feel better they don't have to feel the guilt or the sadness and you know just picturing what the what the kids are going to enjoy so i i i'm all in i'm drawn to it i i got a feeling i'm going to get off of here and probably make a donation to it actually uh wow. if there's a way to donate so actually while we wrap up alexis why don't you tell us how to be a part of that and then giuseppe you can tell us how to you know get into the better app and and get involved in any other ways that are important to you guys yeah so recoverykids.com it's with a z so recoverykids.com or you can go to the instagram which is recovery at recoverykids um and you can get <laughs> i've got a little kid right here that's like staring at me like <laughs> yeah no, yeah so um you can go there um and uh and and yeah we we really just um you know even if you just want to share a story or something of like when you've been helped or somewhere that you've helped or whatever we love just hearing and, and sharing stories not just with recovery kids but like within the recovery communities so if somebody just wants to come and connect um and they there's lots of also ways to volunteer with us without donating money because i know a lot of people are like oh i don't know how to donate like don't yes we will take your money but um and we need your money um and but we also have uh like amazon wish lists that we create at christmas time so you can go on at christmas and like pick the gifts that uh, parents have actually picked out on Amazon and they just get directly shipped to me. So that's a way to do it without um, actually giving money. Um, and then there's just ways of like, um, like sharing the message on social media and things like that of volunteering. So yeah, recovery kids with a Z. That's with a Z in America. Yeah. Yeah. Oh we don't know gosh, what that is. Sorry. <laughs> What's a Z? <laughs> a Z. Um, but yeah, like my friend Jennifer Wild, she has a, a podcast called Sober Exposure. And um, and she is is helping to, she's like, yeah, I want to start this in the States too. So if there's anyone that's in the States that like wants to create that model that I've done um, and, and wants some help in like learning how to do it and wants to give back to their community, even in like a micro way, like helping 
one place, you can reach out to me and I'll let you know everything that I've done. Um, and, and I've learned a lot over the last decade so that, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to take it on, but if you want to take it on um, in your own community, it really is a, a great way to help out. Awesome. And what do you got, Giuseppe? How do we find everything you're interested in? So, you know, if you want to support the projects that we work on, you can go to lastdoor.org and make a donation there. And in the notes, you can put, I want to support Recovery Day, a Clean Sober Proud events, a Better App, you know, any or just treatment. Um, so that's awesome. Thank you very much. If you want to download Better App, you can go to betterapp.ca and there's links there. Um, or you can search in your app store Better My Recovery Plan and it should come up. Um, so better my recovery. Actually, no, sorry, better my recovery app, um, and uh, and that will help you find the apps to create your profile. And when you create a profile, it's being created as a person in recovery, a person who's using drugs, or a person that's a recovery ally. Um, so we can all work together in those three realms. Um, so yeah, that's better app, and you know the radio show, the Talk Recovery Radio, all that's on on Last Door's website. You just go to links, uh, and, and you can find everything there. And uh, we've got lots of projects going on. And if you are interested in traveling to Canada, um, you know, on April 12th and 13th, uh, it's our fifth annual Recovery Capital Conference. And it uh, brings together recovery-orientated leaders from around the world um, to this year. It's in Calgary. It's a national summit. And uh, I'm the co-chair of that conference committee. And uh, we're at uh, pretty much 80% sold or 70% sold so far. So so your tickets, but we have uh, some great speakers like Dr. John Kelly, Dr. David Bass. Uh, we've got the people behind the uh, Iceland model. You should get them on your show. That is a, a, a place that spent all their funding on prevention, and now they don't even have an addiction issue in Iceland. Um, so it's called the Icelandic model, and it's uh, they did simple things like fun soccer for kids, you know, for every kid in the entire country. And, um, you know, they, they, they waited it out and, and 15, 20 years later, they, from a country that had the worst alcohol consumption use on the planet, the worst, they had more people drinking there than anywhere else. They have the lowest alcohol consumption rate in the world. So, so prevention works. So, and that's what we try to do with fun and recovery. So if you like what you hear, go to laststore.org, make a donation, download the app. Let's save our friends' lives. If you have a sponsor using, you have a friend using, your kid's using in the basement, you know, tell them to use the app. It's, it, it goes by text messaging. Um, so what happens is you, you you open up the app. The app sends a text message to your safety net. We call them digital spotters here. And uh, and you get a ping. Are you, are you aware that someone's using? Do you want to be their digital spotter? You agree to yes. So there's that alertness. Like I know someone's about to use. You get a text message. Saying Charlie's using, um, and give it two minutes. And if he shuts his alarm off, then he's okay. Um, if he doesn't, then you have their address, and and you can go uh, spot them. And can I just mention uh, one other thing about the app that I really liked was that you have a section of uh, speaker speakers on there within all yeah, the yeah. different fellowships. With I found was really interesting because 
I don't tend to listen. Yeah, I don't tend to listen to speakers outside of my own fellowship and to have them all listed there to be able to select different fellowships just to get a more open mind about some of that sort of stuff I thought was really neat. Oh, and it's it's only missing recovery podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) We we need to be. You know what? We're going to be adding them. There's there's two things. One is if you hit higher power, it randomly selects any tape so you never hear it twice. And I've done that a few times and it's, I love. I love. I never thought I'd say this, but I love the older wife and the Al-Anon meetings. I think they just the way the things they say is it's like, oh, I love you. I want. I want to have dinner with you. And the other thing too that we're we're really going to be kicking off. It's called Recovery Room Live Rooms, and so you can podcast yourself live, and everybody in the app gets a notification. And, and so it's going to be like the Clubhouse and the Wisdom apps, where you can pick a topic and do a live speaker meeting and. We're going to beef up that page a bit more, too. But right now, you can uh, they're going to be starting up. We have a series of people that are scheduled to do some. So we're excited about that. And, you know, we'd love to bring on some more podcasts. So that's that's a, that's a project in the happening. So we'll be adding yours for sure, if, with awesome. permission. Oh, sure. Thank yeah. you. Absolutely. The thing that I love about the Better app is that it isn't program specific. So there is smart recovery in there. Um, it's a really easy way if you're traveling to find meetings. Um, you can log into your own meeting. It's a connection app. Um, and uh, and yeah, and, and, and like Giuseppe said, like when I relapsed, I had a lot of shame and I didn't want to come back to meetings right away, right? Like I didn't want to come back to meetings. People knew me, people, th- right? Like that, oh, people are going to judge me and like um, this hierarchy of clean time and whatever. And so if I had had the app at that time, um, it's a way to create connections. I can log in and, and just feel like I'm connected to something without maybe having to actually step foot in there. Right. So it's a bridge. And, you know, we talk about the wait times in, in to get into treatment, right? Like how long it can take sometimes if you're not private care, where you're walking in that same day and you have to wait a month, this is a really great way to connect and get in and in touch and like talk to people in recovery and, um, and, and, and sort of listen to meetings and listen to speaker tapes and, and go into those podcast rooms and, and, uh, and, and if I'm going to use, use in a way where, um, you know, it's safe, right. And, and bridge the, the gap from that moment of, yes, I want to get clean, right. That moment of like, yes, I want to get clean. I'm ready to do it right now. And then actually getting into treatment. And so the, it's a really great way just to even have it on my phone and be like, you know what, I'm even for me, even the Russell, Br- there's the Russell brand steps in there, which <laughs> is like, there's, it's just like, are you fucked? Right. Like <laughs> there's no, no like program or anything. Like I told my mom, I'm like, my mom's like, I really like Lay's chips. That's how she relates to addiction. And it's crazy. But she's like, I, I love Lay's chips. <laughs> Lay's chips. And she's like, you know, and, and she, but yeah, like she, she, she could do this. Like anyone can do the steps. Anyone can do. It's just, it's, it's not just an app for people in recovery is my point. My point is that it's for anybody that's an ally of recovery, anybody that's been touched by recovery or by addiction. It's a really important app for people. If I may, just two things I wanted to point out too. One is this came from where I work. We have this thing called a 12 step exercise. So if you have something in your life that's just really, you know, you're two years in recovery and like just you're breaking up with your girlfriend. You just lost your job. You, 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 you did a little bit of gambling last night and lost a shitload of money. And now your wife's going to find out or your partner, you know, that kind of stuff. 
and you need to like find a solution. It's called the 12 step exercise. It's meant to be done in one day. It's just 12 questions, you answer them and it's all digital and all that. And you can share it with your sponsor immediately when you answer the questions. And it's just an opportunity to like, and this exercise that I, our experiences has helped so many people kind of get to a solution within a day without feeling all the pressure of the consequences. So so that's something I really wanted to point out, like, like use that, it's gonna help you. And then another thing is I hate, I don't hate Zoom meetings. I love Zoom meetings. I hate the pressure it's put on people in 12-step meetings because you got, they've all of a sudden have become AV operators for many conferences. It's like cameras and microphones and computers and laptops and projectors. It's like you got 10 minutes to set it up and the pressure and, and I, I, like I, I can feel the pressure it's created. Um, where, you know, and it's just this prolonged kind of acceptance of, you know, somebody's got to show up an hour early to set up this meeting. So you can stream your home group live. No more Zoom codes. You just find your meeting, you hit go live. Everybody in your home groups gets a notification. Anybody, your mom wants to join in to listen to your case, she can log in. She doesn't need a code. She doesn't need a password. It's just, okay, it's live. I listen to it. And so we we tried to simplify as we go into a less COVID world and meetings are in person. You know, for that odd small group of people that still want to stay digital, you don't have to have a you know this audio visual company coming in setting up your twelve step meeting for twenty people. You know, just go live; it's super easy. So I just want to point out those two more things I'm I'm kind of proud of uh, on this version. And uh, hey, thanks for letting us uh, rant and speak and talk. And you know, I'd love to chat more. You know, on on the side about some of our findings and what we're doing and. Yes, it's, I'll send you some hey guys, of the tape. Come on, talk recovery. Yeah, you, you come on, talk recovery. We do our show every Thursday. It's a radio show that we, because of Zoom, now it's a hybrid between Zoom and radio, but it started off as a radio. We do the show. The studio is closed still, which should be opening up, but right in the heart of the downtown east side. So, like, we're climbing over people that are like passed out at the door well um, to go into the studio to do a show about recovery. and you know, it's our eighth year now, I think, and um, it's been quite the journey. And I got to tell you for myself, when I started the show, I truly believed, you know, um, 12-step recovery is the only way. Like, I truly believe that. And now I've opened up the conversation. I mean, we've had people that run ayahuasca programs, meditation programs, you know, write books about this and that. And, you know, one thing I've learned is everyone is trying their best. And the only problem is we're not being supported to all try our best together. And like when I did those ayahuasca program in interviews, like like he really was like, I want to help these people. And I'm like, okay. You know, I would think person on ayahuasca had to leave the studio. <laughs> I couldn't stay in there uh, for our safety and his. But uh, you know what? Like, who am I to judge? Like, okay, if that's what you want to do. And uh, but you know, for years we've all been fighting for space. So yeah, know. that's beautiful. And and yeah, we'd love to be on there. We'd love to have you guys back on here because I know Billy's got a list. I can look at his <laughs> list of questions over here, and I have quite a few myself that I that I wanted to ask that we just didn't have time for. But thank you so much, people out there. Go check out these resources, the things that have named. There'll be the links in the show notes underneath of this episode. Check it out, be involved, be a part of, donate, set up one in your own community. Like this is all about us reaching out to help the next one. Uh, thank you guys so much for taking thank your time you today. Much. Thank you.
Bye, Alexis. Right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>